Hey, Missio, our reading today is from Ecclesiastes 5.1 through 6.6. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasures in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messengers. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They taking nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. Well, welcome, everybody. It's good to have you. It's really good to see you. I don't know, you know, not that it sometimes isn't. That's what it felt like that implied. It's always good to see you, but today it's very good to see you. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, uh, welcome. If you're watching online and you're new, welcome. If you'd like to get connected to the church, I've been saying this in the last couple of weeks, but we don't have like physical ways to get connected, like a, a connect card anymore. The booth isn't open because of COVID. So you can go to our website, missioslc.com backslash connect, 
fill out a form there, and that will get you in touch with somebody here. You can ask to like hang out with a pastor to learn more about house churches. All of that will happen right there if you're looking for more connection. And then we are in a series right now entitled Strange Joy, working through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we wanted to start 2020, or <laughs> 2021, in this strange book because of how unpredictable and uncertain and uncontrollable the year we just got out of was. For all of us, 2020 was a wild experience. Like, no matter how good of a year it was or how bad of a year it was, it was uncertain. It was uncontrollable. It was unpredictable. It was unconventional. And Ecclesiastes is wisdom for unconventional moments. When life feels like a vapor, when it feels like chasing the wind, like you can't get your hands around what life is, you can't control what life is. Every effort, every endeavor, or the hardest work feels like it just melts into air. Ecclesiastes begins to offer us wisdom for those moments. And over the last couple of weeks, the teacher of Ecclesiastes has been helping us understand why life can feel like a vapor. What happens in life to make it feel that way? What do we do that makes life feel so uncertain, uncontrollable? What's happening in the world around us that makes us feel like it is a vapor or chasing the wind? Talking about desire, how the desires that we hold are always just out of reach, that we run after these things that we hope will fulfill us, and yet they never do. Talked about time, the way that time just feels so much bigger than us and so uncertain and so, like, beyond our control. And so then we put our effort into it, our toil into it, and our work into it that we can't control it, that we're going to die and be born. And the biggest events and the smallest events of our lives always seem to happen outside of our control. And then we've also just talked about a general sense of uncertainty, But today, I think the words that the teacher offers us maybe hit the hardest. And I only say that not because of the place in life that you are. I don't want to try to like write a story over the the place that you're in or the experiences that you're having. But because the words the teacher offers us today so diagnose, I think, a condition that is unique to American Christians. Because the teacher turns their attention to worship and consumption. To worship and wealth, to worship and the lives that we live, the things that we choose to love. Now for a little bit of context in Ecclesiastes, Heather kind of began us here, but we are unsure when the words of Ecclesiastes were spoken. There's a teacher that's, half, that's like kind of narrating things in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we don't exactly know who that teacher is or where those words come from. Some suggest that maybe it's King Solomon and that that's the voice that runs throughout the whole book. Others suggest that it's like a, a person taking on multiple personas, and there's events in the book that kind of look like they're describing different historical moments throughout the life of Israel, and so maybe this person's taking on the persona of a king like Solomon to narrate Israel's history and speak wisdom. So we don't know exactly who's talking, but we do have a good idea of when the book finally comes together in its final form, which is in the last bit 
of Israel's life in the Old Testament. Most likely when they are occupied by Persia or Greece. So the days of the kings, the days of David, the days of like Israel's massive wealth, the days of a unified empire, those are long over. And now Israel finds itself in a very new kind of life. They are occupied by other empires. And so the teacher who is in this book, or the person who's like compiled the book, is able to look at all of Israel's history, survey the story of Israel, and begin to pull out certain themes to explain why Israel is in the condition that they are in. And as you read Israel's story, certain things begin to emerge, and maybe above all things that emerge from their history is an issue of worship. Israel was built, created to be a worshiping people. At the very center of their life is this facility called the temple, which was supposed to be an environment of worship that curated a kind of lifestyle in the people of Israel. And then their governing laws were religious laws, the Torah, the teachings that God gave them. And those were teachings of worship that would dictate rhythms and systems and habits of the people of Israel, all centered on worship. These things were meant to take God and place God at the very center of Israel's socio-political life. So that everything that they did, every move they made, flowed from this kind of like worshipful experience. So for example, when Israel plowed the fields, And if grain fell on the ground of that field, they were supposed to leave it there so that others could come and get the grain and provide for themselves. And the reason they did that is because, oh, God is abundant. And God has provided enough. And so we leave the grain at the bottom to take care of all of those in the midst of us because we believe that our God is an abundant God who is generous towards us. Israel wasn't allowed to extract interest on a loan. You could give money away to a fellow Israelite, but you couldn't take interest on the loan because, oh, God forgives. Israel wasn't allowed to have a standing army or to invest in military technology. It becomes a pretty big problem late in their life. Why? Because God protects them and is with them. So the socio-political existence of Israel is centered on worship. Like if we believe that this God is who this God has revealed themselves to be, then it changes everything about how we live, about how we function, about how we tax, about how we do government, about how we do military. Everything shifts because we worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in fact, repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, Israel is told that this is why they exist. They don't exist for themselves. They exist to declare to the world what it looks like to exist in relationship with God. So right in the middle of the ancient world, God calls these people, gives them the temple, gives them the Torah, and says, live a little weird because it's going to display to the world what trust in God looks like, what it looks like to worship. The problem, well, is that it never happens. It's a very beautiful idea that unravels immediately. Israel builds armies. They extract interest. They take slaves. They hoard the fields. They don't rest the land. There's environmental policies built into Torah. They do not abide by them. They refuse to care for the poor, the widow, 
the refugees. Yet they do this whilst maintaining the liturgies of worship, meaning they continue to gather at the temple. They sing songs, they offer sacrifices. So on one part of Israel's life, you have like the rituals of God worship is there, it's happening, it's functioning, they're offering sacrifices, right? When Jesus shows up in the New Testament, enters into the temple, he's mad because there's worship happening, and yet at the same time, like as you peel back the layers of that worship, something is rotted underneath it. It's empty. They're extracting and taking advantage of the poor. And God sees this like weird duality of you're worshiping me in ritual, but not in heart, as deeply offensive. The prophet Amos says it very famously, speaking on behalf of God this, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard with them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But instead, let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Israel's worship is empty. And this is the same thing that the writer of Ecclesiastes is naming at the beginning of chapter 5. The teacher says that you make empty vows before God. You offer the sacrifices Fools. And in verse 7, the teacher says this very interesting thing. Much dreaming and many words about God are meaningless. Now in this moment, they're not talking about prophetic dreams. That's often kind of how we think of dreams in the Bible. One theologian, Amy Plantinga, says it this way. This dream is religious words that flow from human dreams are fleeting, baseless fantasies about God. So what she's saying is that Israel's worship has become empty because Israel has decided, subconsciously, intentionally, however that works, Israel has decided or projected onto God their own ideas, images, and fantasies about God. They have remade the Creator to fit their own agenda and interests. Now we do this all the time. In the Old Testament, sometimes you'd see it with idols, so it was like a really good visual representation of it. But we do the same thing all the time. If you remember the riot at the Capitol, there was a noose and a cross next to each other. That is remaking Jesus in a false image. You can't shout, hang Mike Pence and Jesus saves in the same sentence and think, oh, that's a full-bodied worship. In fact, our history declares this. We live in a country that has so deformed the image of God that in the name of God, we justified slavery or genocide, war and exploitation. One Bible scholar says it this way, which I've always thought was very powerful, that the gods you worship determine the societies that you build. And it's not just something that happens in the world, it happens in our own lives. God becomes a reflection of our own judgment, or our own shame, or our own hate, or our own fear. And then it speaks over those around us, or even over ourselves, those same kinds of 
images. So God hates what we hate, or God shames us for the same things that we in the dark shame ourselves for. Another Bible scholar says it this way, we become what we worship for either ruin or restoration. We are a worshiping people. And the gods that we worship, the God that we worship, like it was supposed to for Israel, determines the societies that we build. It determines our identity. It determines the lives that we live. And in Ecclesiastes, the teacher is naming that the people have replaced God with something else, and it is destroying them. As you keep reading in the book, the writer or the teacher goes on to say in verse 8, if you see the poor oppressed in a district, injustice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such thing. What a tragic statement that somebody would say to the people of Israel. Like, you're a people that's supposed to be centered on the worship of the liberating God, and yet if you see someone oppressed, don't be surprised. How bankrupt is that? The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself, the king of Israel, the king of the nation, profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaning. The writer is saying that we orient our lives around the things that we worship. So the field was supposed to provide for all of us, but in the worship of self or of money or of comfort, well, the field has become a pawn for our own usage. And the teacher's not done. He says everything gets offered to the gods that we worship. In chapter 6, verse 3, the, the teacher says that even our families will be consumed by the things that we worship, so that even the people we love the most will be lost. And eventually, in the teacher's words, that dynamic even turns on us. In 5 verse 10, the teacher says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And then again, in 6 verse 7, everyone's toil is for their mouth. Yet their appetite is never satisfied. We become what we worship for ruin or restoration. Teacher looks at the objects of worship and says they take so much more than they give. And eventually it leaves us dissatisfied and restless, hungry. I think most of us know that feeling, or at least can see it. I think it's no wonder when we look through the lens the teacher provides, it is no wonder that there would be so many political upheavals or strange moments in the last four years. It feels like there's a God that is not giving as much as it promises. I think it's no wonder that people leave the church. Oh, it feels like empty worship so often. Sadly, even in more personal ways, it's not surprising that people leave marriages or friendships because we've made these things to be about satisfying ourselves or about giving some kind of meaning. We load our hopes and our dreams and our expectation into those like limited, finite places. And then when they don't deliver all of the hopes that we have loaded into them, well, 
leaves us dissatisfied and hungry. What else are you supposed to do when you realize that the thing that you have worshipped is empty? So what do we do with that? Well, the teacher tells us, remember that God is in heaven and you are on earth. Becky mentioned the moment in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, remember your creator. Or in 5, verse 7, fear God. What that means is that something in the universe is amiss. Something in the universe is amiss. We have forgotten that God is in heaven and that we are on earth. We do not remember our creator. We have lost our orientation to God. Something in the universe is amiss. Our loves have become jumbled. This is what the church father, Augustine, said. He said, our hearts start to become restless because our loves become misordered. Good things become ultimate things. So, for example, like affection is a good thing. Sex is a good thing unless they become ultimate things. And then what we find happening is the same thing that the writer has detailed happens in the life of the poor, that people become pawns, used, taken advantage of, exploited. That's what misordered loves do. They place impossible burdens on everyone and everything. We try to make something that is finite and limited, but good, ultimate, and then it turns into vapor when we get our hands on it. Those things that felt so solid and good and right, they just melt in the air when you force them to carry the weight of the infinite. They cannot do that. Instead, we need something that is ultimate to be our ultimate love, which is why the teacher says, remember your creator. Remember that God is in heaven. It's an invitation to remember who God is and to let God be God. It's a simple reminder. Let God be God. Let God, who is big enough for our running and our chasing and our searching, be the object of running and chasing and searching. Let God be God. Let the one who is defined as perfect love be the thing that you wrestle the most with because then every time you run and turn, you will be met with welcome and relief. Let God be God. Let the one who always offers back to you grace and forgiveness and acceptance be the thing that you chase so that instead of shame or judgment or insecurity, what you are met with is a parent who says, come home. Remember your creator. Let God be God. 
And something happens when we do that. When we remember who God is, when our loves start to get rightly ordered, something begins to just like click and free up in us. Augustine said that we are restless until our hearts find their rest in God. And the result of that restfulness is freedom. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 5.1, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom you have been set free. For freedom you have been set free. What that means is that our loves become rightly ordered as we find ourselves rested, welcomed, greeted with acceptance. We are then freed to love more, not less. That's the gift, that we are free to love more, not less. We're freed from endless pursuits, freed from things that are limited, free from the things that say there is a a limit to love, free from scarcity, and all of a sudden released to love more and better. I think that's one of the reasons the, the teacher keeps giving us this same kind of instruction over and over again throughout Ecclesiastes. In 5, verse 18, the teacher says what has been said so many times before. It says this, This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in all their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them. It's almost like a contradictory statement in some ways to the things that the teacher has said previously, right? That, that pleasure cannot lead to satisfaction. And in one sense, that's true. Eating, drinking, work, they can be coping mechanisms, things that we chase in order to give that sense of satisfaction. They can become ways that we chase empty gods. But when our loves become ordered and our hearts are free, then eating and drinking and working, and being with, well, they start to find a new place of freedom too. Not as ends in and of themselves, but as means of greater love. Like affection is a means of which I engage in love with others. It can't become an end in and of itself, right? It's a means of how I curate love with my wife and my friends and the significant people in my life. That kind of intimacy and affection and touch, it can curate love. It can point me towards love. And when it's not an end in and of itself, then that's what it does. Affection becomes a means of love in which I am loved, in which I love, in which I curate love. And in a greater sense, affection and the love that I have for a spouse or the love that I have for a friend is a means of which I love and am loved and curate love from the Creator. That's why the teacher says these are gifts. Oh, these are gifts. That you might know that you are loved. That you might know how to love. That you might have the ability to curate love. These are Gifts, so eat and drink, do something you like with the people you like. That is a 
gift from a creator who loves you, that you might know you are loved, that you might know how to love, and that you might curate love. See, in that way of thinking, those things are freed from carrying ultimate weight, and they get to just be what they are, gifts. This is what we do every week as we practice table. This little practice that we engage in together in this space, it's meant to like model for us a bigger sense of table. So there's a table here, and then there's a table in our home, and there's a table in our workplaces, or our neighborhoods, or everywhere that we go. And as we eat and drink at this table, and as we eat and drink at the tables in our homes and our workplaces, those are meant to be means of loving of knowing that we are loved, and of curating love. So as we do it here, we do it in our home, and that home table becomes a gift of worship so that we are loved, so that we love, and so that we curate love. And as we go into our workplaces, and we go into our neighborhoods, and as we go hang out with our friends, and we eat and drink and do something we like with the people we like, it's like we are worshiping in that space and inviting everyone there to enter into the worship of our Creator, to remember that you are made for more than this. You were made to be free. So, Missio, as we wrap up, can you just ask yourself, what do you worship? Does it free you to love more generously? That's the test of worship. Does the thing that you worship free you to love more generously? Because here's the thing. If you even have a picture of God, and the picture of God that you have in your mind, when you worship it, it actually limits your love, you need to do some work on your picture of God. Because the God who is described as love, not as being loving, but as love, does not restrict our loves, but Freeze them. So do you feel the freedom to love more generously because of what you worship? Does it release you to love more in every area, to enjoy deeper, to be more present, to be with? Or does the things that you worship limit your love, make it scarce and competitive? Monsieur, what do you worship? Would you wrestle with that as you take your little communion elements? It should be on a seat somewhere near you. It's a small thing. It's not the same table we've normally had. But would you use that small moment to know that you are loved, to love, and to curate love? And would it point you and send you out of this space of worshiping people to invite the world around you? to remember their creator, and to be freed to love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you love us. There's no greater love than this, that someone would lay down their life for another, and you demonstrated the greatest love of all in laying down your life for us and welcoming us into you. Would that be the image that defines you in our minds? 
God of love? Would it reorient every way that we see, everything we do, everything we, we engage in? Would it reorient our hearts and our lives and our ethics? Would it shape how we see ourselves, how we see our friends and our neighbors? Like Israel, would it change the nature of our engagement with the world? God, as we press into this image of you as love, as we worship the God of love, would we take that everywhere we go this week and invite the world into the freedom of love that comes in the worship of you? God, in your name we pray. to take communion as you're ready and then we invite you to continue worshiping with us the God who loves you